Well, hello and welcome. Welcome to the Crossroads Church Podcast. My name is Jessica and I am your host and I love gathering with you each week on the podcast. And I always want to point you toward the show notes because that's where you will access all the things. The talk notes, whether you want to print them out or fill them out digitally, you may even want to just print out the talk notes already filled in. We even have that there. You can also access a link to the Feed e-newsletter where you can stay in the know on all the things happening. And there are ways to give and ways that you could designate giving on there too. If you are maybe somebody who's part of our Crossroads network and you don't live in our area. And we are in the thick of our Christmas month. December is stacked. And thank you to all of our volunteers who have been serving in our neighborhood Walmart, bell ringing with the Salvation Army. This week, we start a new series called The Meaning Behind the Magic. And Ryan is teaching on finding what matters most. And the anchor verse for the series is from Luke 2, 18 to 19. And it says... Everyone who listened was astonished at what the shepherds told them, but Mary took all this in and reflected on it. Here's Ryan. Christmas. That wasn't bad for a pretty subdued group of folks. Pretty subdued here. It's good to see everybody. It's good to see most of you. I can see some of you. Well, it's good to see all of you. So, hey, my name is Ryan, and uh, I am the lead pastor here at Crossroads. It's great to be together, especially during this Christmas season. Uh, I want to welcome those of you that are tuning in online. Thank you for being present. I know that uh, everybody's comfort level when it comes to the pandemic and where we are in our current culture and reality. Uh, Many of us are gathering still at home, and that's wonderful. So great to have you here. Jim Adams, our online host. Everybody give Jim a great big hand today. I think he's hosting online. So Jim, I need you to get your fingers ready, and I want, you to, I want you to type this, and if you're here in the room and you're present, you want to write this number down, 207-608-1106, 207-608-1106, that's my cell phone number. If you want to get together and have coffee uh, and just chat and learn more about our church, learn more about me, I'd love to learn more about you. That's something I've been trying to do more of uh, now that we're in a space where we can kind of gather safely and be vaccinated, all that good stuff. And so if you're a guest today, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. I I put that number out especially for you uh, to just send me a text message. I'd love for you to take me out to coffee. Uh, I am... uh, I'm going to be honest, I'm not a cheap date, though. I do the whole like Vente extra shots for, you know, all kinds of syrups. It's about a $27 coffee. So just, just be aware of that if, uh, if we do get together. And sometimes I go for two. I'm not going to lie to you. If the conversation wanes, uh, I just, I say, bring another round, you know. So no, it's on me. So it'd be great to do that and connect. Uh, I know walking into a new church, a new experience like this uh, can be a bit challenging, especially when I'm standing up here. So I understand that. So it's good. We're in a new series today called The Meaning Behind the Magic. Uh, Let me ask you this question. Raise your hand up nice and high all over the place. If you're at home, raise your hand up. I know it's weird, but just pretend you're here with us. How many of you have ever seen the movie The Polar Express? 
Raise your hand up nice and high. If we really wanted to shame you for your lack of Christmas spirit, I could ask who hasn't seen Polar Express, and we could send you out immediately to the atrium to watch it or to Netflix, wherever it might be. But uh, the Polar Express is a fun Christmas movie. Our tradition in our home has been that we watch that when we decorate the tree, when we trim the tree. I have no idea where that phrase trim came from. I really should stay focused today because we have a lot to cover. You all should be glad you weren't here for Thursday night because I had Friday and Saturday to trim this puppy down, okay? Uh, so that's good. But uh, the, the Polar Express, we watch it uh, while we trim the tree, while we decorate the tree. And uh, the Polar Express is great because it's just filled with all kinds of magical moments, right? There's the hot chocolate. There's a train that comes and picks kids up in the middle of the night without their parents knowing. You never thought about it that way, did you, right? Like the whole premise of that movie is really sketchy, right? <laughs> Don't worry, mom and dad don't need to know. Get on the train, little boy. There's not, there's something wrong about that, I'm telling you. But at any rate, uh, it's just filled with all kinds of stories. And we love it, right? We love watching it. And here's the thing. The meaning, though, of the Polar Express is not found in all of those fun, magical moments. It's found in the tickets. You remember each of the kids, every kid that gets on the train gets their own individual ticket. It's non-transferable. You can't give it to anybody because there's a special message that gets punched in for each kid. If you remember towards the end of the movie, the conductor has his little punch and, and he's flipping the golden tickets, right? And so you have these four major characters in the story, right? You have the, the know-it-all, right? The know-it-all little boy, if you remember him. And what, did, what got punched on his ticket was learn, the word learn. Remember, he thought it said lean because his thumb was in the wrong way, and he got all defiant about it. And then he said, I believe your ticket has five letters, not four. And he looks at it, and he goes, oh, my bad. I'm sorry. And he says, lesson learned, right? Uh, that, that there was a lesson for him, some unique wisdom for his heart to be a person who learns more, right? To be a person who doesn't have to know everything. And then you have Billy, the lonely boy, who the train picks up and doesn't want to come at first. He's on the other side of the tracks, not sure if anybody will like him, will fit in. And, and he gets on the train. And, and what does the ticket say? If you remember, it actually has three. It, it says depend on, it says rely on, and it says lean on. So there's a lesson for him in his heart to know that people can be dependent on, that people can be relied on, that you can lean on your friends, that you have friends. And then if you remember the hero girl, that's her name in the credits, right? The little girl, and her ticket said lead. She thought it said lead at first. That would be like what I would do, lead. In the world, conduct lead. And she has the heart of a leader. And so her journey through the Polar Express was to learn to live into that leadership and to be okay with it, right? And then there was the hero boy, right? The boy who doubted everything, was starting to not believe in Santa Claus, all that stuff. And, and his ticket said, believe, that there's power in belief, right? Can't explain everything, but there's power in belief. Now, the meaning behind the magic of the whole Polar Express experience is what matters most. It's not that there's dancing people with hot chocolate. It's not that there's a really funny conductor, some weird guy on top of the train who disappears, right? All those elements are wonderful. There's the magic bell at the end. But the real meaning is found in those tickets. The whole journey of each child is around them coming into an understanding of their own heart, of their own life, right? But we know finding the meaning behind really magical things like movies like the Polar Express is tricky work. Right? It's tricky work. Some of you just got so excited because that was the first fill-in. Yes! It's so satisfying. You're like, 27 left. You've already counted. You know. You're like, oh, man. It's tricky to find that. So our anchor verse for this series is at the top of your talk notes there, and it comes from Luke chapter 2. 
And this is the moment in the Christmas story, if you're familiar with it, where the shepherds kind of show up and they've just like, all these angels have been singing to them and they go find the baby Jesus. And it says in Luke chapter two, verse 18, that everyone who listened to this story was astonished. They were just absolutely astonished. But Mary took all this in and reflected on it. And I love that, that little moment there. Could you imagine everybody around the manger scene listening to the shepherds like, man, I wish I was there, right? How could, like, tell us more about it. What were they wearing? Like all that stuff. But Mary's just listening and Mary's got a discerning heart and Mary's trying to figure out what's the real meaning behind this. And it's tricky to find meaning behind really magical moments because magic is captivating, right? It gets our attention. Uh, it, it, it takes our imaginations. We go, how did that happen? Do y'all have, uh, y'all ever watch TikTok reels? Anybody watch TikTok reels? Do y'all know what TikTok is? No? Okay, this is more the Polar Express crowd. My bad. All right, so I, I see. I see how it is. <laughs> Don't get into TikTok reels. Like, they'll suck you in, and it's a bad, like, but anyway, they do all these, sometimes you'll find TikTok reels that have magic, and you're like, how did they do that, right? And you're captivated by it. And I know it's hard to find meaning behind the magic because when you watch the Polar Express, I guarantee you, I mean, at least 99.9999% of us, we, we never thought after we watched the movie, we never sat there and said, I wonder what my ticket would say. Right? We never thought that. We never thought, I wonder if the Polar Express would have picked me up as a child what would the conductor have punched in my ticket for me to live into my calling, the place that God has for me in life? I know I just super spiritualized it, but give me a break. I'm a pastor, right? That's what you pay me for, right? But what would it look like? We don't think that. What do we think? I want some of that hot chocolate. I want those people dancing all around, not spilling a drop. How did they do that? I want to meet the guy on the roof, on the, on the roof of the train that goes, that's insane. I want the bell. Like we get caught up in those really magical moments and we miss the meaning. And I think something similar can happen when we talk about these stories around the birth of Jesus, right? They're so fantastic. They're so mystical. They're so magical that we can easily miss the meaning behind them because we get caught up in the story itself. And thanks to the enlightenment, <laughs> we get caught up in this question. Well, did it really happen? Did it really happen that way? Like how do we, and, and we start kind of getting into arguments. And sometimes, like, because we all have what are called modern brains, right? Our brains function in the way of modern philosophy that we're very, we're very attuned to what we would consider to be like, this is how it works. We can prove it. We know it historically. And so it's therefore can be trusted and it's genuine and it's real. So we get into these big arguments. And if you've been around like Christendom for a long time, maybe you've been a part of the arguments where somebody said, well, here's the problems with the Christmas stories. And then you start getting into the big debate. Was it fact or is it a fable? And those are the categories that we tend to take these really magical stories. In. And if you're like me, I'm just going to be honest. I have a hard time believing the virgins give birth. It doesn't compute in my brain, right? I've never seen an angel. So I have a tendency to go, mm, I don't know what's going on there. Right? I, that's just kind of how my brain works. And maybe you had an experience and, and you kind of went through this phase of thinking about these Christmas stories and going, wait a second, Matthew says it this way and Luke says it this way, which way did it actually happen? And, and because of like modernity, we have this tendency to go, well, then we'll just throw it out. Because if we can't prove that it's factually true, then we'll just throw it out. But we're missing the whole point. The point isn't the story, whether it happened actually as it happened. The point is the meaning that the authors are trying to give us. And so when we think about these stories, some of us think about these birth stories, the birth narratives, just like John and Mark and Paul did. Nothing extraordinary about them. 
Now, before you start throwing your pins at me and walking out in an angry way, okay, because I know we all love Christmas and we've got our major scenes, but listen, I'm just going to tell you what seems to be like the truth. Paul and Mark and John, right? That's not the Beatles, but the, the three writers of the Gospels, some of the Gospels, and, and, and Paul, kind of who writes his own kind of Gospel through the letters, they just didn't care about how Jesus was born. It wasn't a part. And if all these are going to communities, it would seem that it doesn't matter. Mark doesn't mention at all the birth of Jesus, right? Mark is our earliest gospel in the New Testament. And Mark's community is like, eh, we don't know. No big deal. Picks up at the baptism. Like his whole childhood, birth Jesus, eh. uh, Like Paul, he mentions like the, the birth heritage of Jesus twice. Once in Romans, where he basically says he descended from David according to the flesh. And once in Galatians, where he says, oh, he's born of a woman under the law. Yeah, and? It just didn't matter. It did not matter to them. So, like, the consensus is, in the earliest Christian communities, like, the birth of Jesus just, it wasn't important. I'm just going to let that one sit for a second. That's like wine. It just needs to sit and breathe right? Because you're like, what? (laughs) It just didn't matter. So if you're in here and you're kind of like this person who gets super skeptical about supernatural things and this idea, and you're like, oh, it's all made up, whatever. Like, guess what? There were a whole bunch of the earliest Christians who were trying to live out the way of Jesus that would have been right there with you. They just, it didn't matter. It wasn't important in the story. But here's the interesting thing. They became important, (laughs) Like these birth stories became very important. They emerged among the traditions about Jesus. They got written down. They developed over time and they were used for very specific purposes. So some of us, in fact, many of us who are Christians, we think about the actual birth of Jesus, like Matthew and Luke, that is deeply meaningful, right? And I love that we have these four gospels. We have have one gospel, but four according tos. If you're kind of familiar with the Bible, we have these four books in the New Testament that tell us the story of Jesus. One says nothing about his birth. That's Mark. John uses all this kind of like mystical philosophical language about light entering into darkness, being the light of the world, right? Being with God, very God, all this stuff. And then, then you have Matthew and Luke that give us like birth narratives and stories about the conception that are very different. And I love that we have that set of diversity. But for Matthew and Luke, the birth narratives, like they set the stage for everything. They give in short form what we're going to see in their entire gospels. So when Matthew and Luke write the, the birth narratives, they're putting these stories together. They're shaping them for a very important purpose for them because they're giving theology. They're giving meaning. It's meaning-making in the world. And so if we're going to like, look at these stories in a healthy way, I think we have to approach them with two, in two, with two important kind of tools. So I want to give you some tools in your tool belt for thinking about these stories, okay? So the first approach that I want to encourage us to take... Now, again, I'm going to say this. <laughs> don't... Okay, don't stop listening, all right? Just hear me out, Okay? I think, I just think sometimes I say, just stop listening, okay? But just hold on, all right? We want to bring a parabolic approach, okay? Now, that's kind of a big fancy word, but we all know what a parable is. It's a story that helps us understand meaning, right? Now, we want to bring a parabolic approach to these stories and recognize that they're, they're giving us more than history. In fact, they were never meant to give us history. I just don't believe that. They're meant to give us meaning. The truth, it's in the meaning, 
The truth of the story is not in their historical factuality. The truth of the story is in what Matthew and Luke are saying to us. And so it's important that we recognize that. Their truth does not depend on their factuality. Because as you start to dig in, and if you really take a, 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 an eye for these stories and start comparing them, you're going to see they're, they're very different. And we can either try and mash it all together because we believe like modern-minded people that if you can't get to it factually and make it all make sense, then you got to throw it all out. I just don't think we ought to think that way. I think we should let Luke tell the story the way Luke wants to because he has a purpose for it and Matthew the same way. Okay, so let's not fall into this modern philosophical trap of fact or fable. There's another way to see these things. And that is to say, what is, what's the meaning here? It's credible, not because it has all the historical facts right, but because it's helping us understand for Matthew and Matthew's community the importance of Jesus and Luke and Luke's community. So let's embrace the stories for what they are and let them teach us the truth about the good news of Jesus. So we're going to be focusing more on something more than just the literal meaning. We're not looking for the literal factual meaning. I'm not trying to prove anything about it. We're looking at these stories in this parabolic way. What are they trying to teach us? What does Matthew want us to know? Now, here's what some of you are going to take a nice deep breath and be glad I say this, okay? To approach parabolically does not deny their factuality, okay? I'm in no way, shape, or form saying, don't believe in these things factually, okay? I'm in no way, shape, or form saying, don't go on a quest to find out what did the birth of Jesus really look like? I'm just saying this sets that question to the side. Like, we can just set that question to the side. We don't have to get caught up in it. Like, the importance of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the life of Jesus is not and does not need to be grounded in right? A really literal understanding of even the birth narratives because they'll miss the beauty. But, but this takes some real attention to these stories, right? So the second approach we want to take to all these stories is what we'll call the historical approach, all right? Now, when I say the historical approach, I don't mean let's just get down to the facts. I've already said that, right? What we're talking about is understanding these ancient texts. They come to us from 2,000 years ago. That's a long time ago, and so we want to always make sure we understand the stories in their context. What did they mean, not just to us right now, but first, what did they mean to the Christian communities that told them really near the end of the first century? Matthew's probably written, Matthew and Luke are both written somewhere, my guess, between 80 and 100. So somewhere between you know, 50 to you know, 60, 70 years after Jesus. This is all about understanding Jesus, these, these texts are. Mark's earlier than that. So, so I want us to understand, that's what I mean. We want to first think about it in that way. What did it mean to those Christian communities that told these stories, that developed these stories, that heard these stories? Marcus Borg and Dominic Crossan, in their book, The First Christmas, they say this, the more than literal, more than factual meaning of biblical stories always matters most. Always matters most. Our scriptures that we hold to be like of utmost importance here, uh, they are not meant to give us history. They're meant to give us theology. They're meant to help us make meaning of God and how God is working in our world from the perspective of people that follow the way of Jesus. So these birth stories, when they were written, I don't believe that they were written to convince someone to believe in something. Like Matthew's not writing his gospel going, I got to go find a bunch of people that don't believe in Jesus and convince them to believe in Jesus. 
That's not what Matthew is doing. They were written to help those original believers, the ones who were following Jesus, understand the importance, understand the message, understand the meaning. They're not an apologetic, right? It's not meant to convince the skeptic. You're never, I mean, how could you ever, I mean, I can't prove that Jesus was born of a virgin. How am I going to prove that? They didn't have like those little tests back then. I don't know. What it, like, I don't, I don't, how do I, we can't prove that. I can't prove whether he was born in a house or a manger. We can't prove any of that. But what we can do is we can understand the meaning of it. So if they're not, if, I, if what I'm suggesting is we don't need to, to like get all caught up in the factuality of these, but we can find the meaning of it. What then are they? They're overtures. This is pretty cool. So Matthew and Luke, their stories about the birth of Jesus are overtures to their whole gospel. So what is an overture? Well, an overture in music is what opens the show, right? When the show opens up, the curtain raises, there's that music that comes to us, and inside of the overture are all the different themes that you're going to hear throughout the entire opera or throughout the entire play. I'm going to see Hamilton in February. That's right. Yeah, you can clap for that. That's what it takes. I didn't realize. Okay, there it is. Right? Love Hamilton. We waited in, I waited in line for like three hours online to get these t- tickets. I was only 10,000 in line. You know, it was crazy, but they did a good job. So we're going to see Hamilton. I love Hamilton. The, the, when you hear the overture, you get all the great themes that I'm going to hear throughout the whole show. And that's what happens in the Gospels. It prepares us, right? Just like an overture in an in a opera or in a musical prepares the audience for what they're going to hear. The, the overture of the Gospels prepares us for what we're going to hear as well. Now, both Matthew and Luke insist that Jesus is not ending something, that he's not crushing or against his heritage, his Judaism, but he's fulfilling it. He is the high point. But they each then have their own themes. Matthew's great themes for his whole gospel is Jesus is the new Moses and there's a new law. Jesus is a new Moses, there's a new law. If you ever hear a passage from a gospel and it says like, you know, to fulfill what was written, chances are it comes from Matthew. Matthew is deeply concerned with showing his audience that Jesus is the new Moses and what Jesus offers is far more powerful. So what you have in Matthew 1 and 2 is a miniature version of 3 through 28, okay? Now, Luke's great theme is not that. It's like Luke doesn't even care, right? Luke has three big themes and that is emphasis on women, like there's an emphasis on the marginalized in culture and on the Holy Spirit. So that's what Luke's interested in. What does Jesus mean for women? What does Jesus mean for the marginalized? And what is the Holy Spirit as it relates to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus? So if you read the gospel of Luke, you'll find all these stories about women that you don't find anyplace else. If you read the gospel of Matthew, you'll find all these fulfillment of prophecies that you don't see anyplace else because they have their agendas that they're teaching us. So Luke 1 and 2 is a miniature version of the rest of Luke. And so, so Matthew Luke put these stories together, including the, the narratives of Jesus' birth, to help answer significant questions that were facing Christians in these earliest communities. So they were literally wrestling with this question of, well, who is king of the Jews? Who is king of the Jews, right? Is it Herod? Right? Is it Rome for Matthew? Nope, that's not the case. The king of the Jews is not Herod of Rome, it's Jesus. Who's Lord? Who's Savior of the world? Who's the one who brings peace on earth? All these were titles that were given to Caesar at the same time. And so the big question is, who is that? Who is the son of God? Caesar was called son of God. Luke is saying, it's not the emperor. It's Jesus. Those titles belong to Jesus. 
That's where we get all of those things. Who's the light of the world? Was it going to be the emperor who was considered to be son of Apollo, the god of light and reason and order, creation? (laughs) Or is it somebody else? Is it Jesus who is the light in the darkness, the true light that draws all men and women to the truth and to love? Like these were the questions. The big, another big question was, where do we see God's big idea for humanity? Where do we see the vision that God has for humanity and for the, the role of Israel in that? Where is that? Is that in the way things are right now, just as we live in, live in this world? That's what they were asking themselves. Is it, are we just supposed to be under imperial rule? Is it, is it, are we going to actually see God's vision for humanity in the future, like after we die in the sweet by and by, whatever that means? Or is it something else? Is it something that's, that's happening right now in this world before death? So these are the big questions. And so here's what's really cool. Your, your manger scene, how many of y'all have manger scenes at home? I got to get you engaged because that was just a whole bunch of background. It was so boring. I'm just fascinated that you're still awake. You have manger scene. Raise your hand nice and high. You got a manger scene. All right. Most of you won't be shocked to know that that manger scene is found nowhere in the Bible. You know that, right? Like there is no scene in the Bible where the shepherd and the wise men are there. It's not there. Doesn't happen, right? It's just not there. But what do we do? We put it all together. So stop doing that. You're wrong. (laughs) You need to be historically factual and accurate. See, you're freaking out about me right now inside your heart, but at home, you don't have anything historically factual about the birth of Jesus. So get off my back, everybody. (laughs) But here's what's so cool. When we combine all this into one manger scene, you get the story of the entire Christian gospel in miniature form. You get it all. And and here's the thing. If you get it, you get everything. If you can get why wise men, why shepherds, why, why, why do we need to understand both as available and coming to Jesus? Why was Jesus like born in in Bethlehem? What, what was the significance of that? Why do we say that? Why does one say he went to Egypt and one has nothing about that? Why, did, why does one send, like, why does one put Jesus leaving Nazareth, going into Bethlehem, and one not? Like, what, why is that? What's going on there? Like, when we can start to understand the meaning behind all of these things, you get it all. But here's the thing, if we miss it, we'll miss it all as well. That's why this is important. That's why these have to be more than stories of just magical things. So very quickly, let's look at one magical story from the birth of Jesus. Can we do that? Are you, do you need a stretch break? I feel like we should have intermission. Some Twizzlers or Red Vines if you're Rod, you know. Who likes Twizzlers more than Red Vines? Raise your hand up nice and high. You're a Twizzlers person. Let's settle this right now, Rod. Twizzlers? I didn't ask you to boo me. I am fragile. What in the world? All right, how many of you like red vines? Okay, well, it feels like there are more Twizzler people in the room, but, but I can definitely say the Twizzler people are nicer than the red vines people. Holy cow. Red vines people, if I were you, I'd give more in the offering. You, is there something going on there in your soul? Okay, so let's look at the story of the Magi and the star. Okay, if you're new to Bible study, don't sweat it. Uh, chances are you might have heard this story, even if you didn't grow up in a Christian heritage. It's kind of a famous story. Songs are written about it. In Matthew chapter 2, we get this story. It's not found in Luke. Luke's not concerned with the Magi. Why is Luke not concerned with the Magi? I gave you the answer earlier. 
because, because Luke is concerned with the poor and the marginalized. And the Magi were not poor and were not marginalized. Matthew, it's the shepherds. Or excuse me, in Luke, it's the shepherds because Luke, right from the beginning, wants you to know it's the poorest, the underclass, the underdog that get the message of Jesus, right? And that is a huge part of the gospel, right? So the story of the Magi, it starts off like this in Matthew chapter two. It says, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now, why would they go to Jerusalem? Because, well, that was the capital. If you were looking for the king, you would go to Jerusalem. So they arrive in Jerusalem and they say, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star at its rising and have come to do him homage. We've come to worship him, come to pay respects, right? So let's take an understanding of the historical point in which this is written. So when this is being written, there is a huge battle taking place in the hearts and minds of of uh, Matthew's Jewish audience, and that is this battle for what we'll call the fifth kingdom. I know it sounds like something straight out of Lord of the Rings, right? The battle for the fifth kingdom. There can be only one ring, right? No. So the fifth kingdom, here's the deal. This clash of kingdoms is crucial for understanding the historical context of the, the, the Christmas stories. And so what's happening here is there's this thought that has, it started in the Greco world and it entered into the, the Greco-Roman world and the Jewish idea picked it up as well, uh, probably two centuries, three centuries before Jesus was born. And that was that there were going to be five kingdoms in this world. And here's the thing, both the Jews and the Romans believed that four had already passed and that this fifth one was now present and was going to last forever. And the Romans believed, as you can imagine, that they were the fifth kingdom. So the Roman rule was going to be it. Now, the Jewish, gets, Jewish imagination got this view from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, there's these beasts that come out of the water, and it's very strange and very weird, and we don't talk about it a whole lot, right? But these beasts represent four kingdoms that come out, and they look like animals, right? And they're like, they're like one looks like a bear, and one looks like a lion, one's kind of a mixture of things, right? but they're brutal and they come out. But in Daniel chapter seven, we find that, 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 that God, the divine court, has judged these four kingdoms and has said that they are not worthy to rule and set them aside. And there's a fifth kingdom that's gonna emerge and it's also symbolized in Daniel chapter seven, but it's not symbolized as a wild animal. It's symbolized as one that looks like, that's the language of Daniel, this one looked like a bear, this one looked like an eagle. Now Daniel says this fifth kingdom will look like a son of man. How many of you ever heard that phrase talking about Jesus, like a son of man, right? Or human one, that's kind of patriarchal, chauvinistic language, son of man. It would be son of humanity, right? And the idea was that the first four kingdoms were inhuman, beasts, but the final one is truly human. <laughs> this is what it means to be human. This is what it means to be a ruler of this world in a human capacity. And so there were big differences between the Roman fifth kingdom and the Jewish fifth kingdom, the kingdom of God. So the, the kingdom of Rome, right? It came about peace through victory. Peace through victory, not a fill-in. I know some of you are looking for that. It's not. It'll always be in bold yellow, trust me. I'm making it easy on you. Peace through victory. But here's the deal. The kingdom of God found in Jesus was peace through justice. 
peace through justice, enough for everyone, the care of the world. So the big question facing the communities was, which is the fifth kingdom? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Caesar. Where is it going to be? Both of these kingdoms came with divine credentials. It's not like the Romans didn't believe in gods or, or a god. They believed that the gods and gods had set up their kingdom. They had blessed them through victory. But what Matthew's doing here right off the bat, and, and his audience would know it, <laughs> Jesus is the alternative to Rome. That's what we have here. Because he says, king of the Jews. It's the only birth narrative. Matthew doesn't call Jesus king of the Jews in the birth narrative. Or excuse me, Matthew does. Luke doesn't do that. So Matthew is very concerned right off the bat. So as you can imagine, (laughs) King Herod hears this. And Matthew tells us he was troubled. And so was all of Jerusalem. Now, (laughs) there's no internet back then. So it's not like he tweeted something and all of Jerusalem went into a tizzy. Matthew's writing us something to help us understand. When Herod's not happy, nobody's happy, right? So Herod freaks out. Why? Because he was threatened. He immediately felt the threat to his power and his prestige because he wanted power through victory and all of those things. Now there's this alternative that's emerging. Matthew's saying, listen, from the very beginning, The reason why Rome had it out for Jesus was because he threatened their power. They viewed Jesus as a threat. Now, here's the thing. Everybody that Matthew would have been writing to, they would have started going something like this. Hmm, this sounds super familiar. (laughs) Like everybody in the first century in Matthew's community, they'd be like, I think I know where this guy's going. This reminds me of another guy. This reminds me of another guy who threatened power, who was born and was put in a river too wait a second. And they knew the stories of Pharaoh and Moses. And they had stories of Pharaoh and Moses that we don't have in our Bible because they had all kinds of traditions and all kinds of stories that became part of what are called midrash, like the commentaries in Jewish life on the stories that are in our Old Testament. And one of the stories was that Pharaoh had a dream. And when Pharaoh has this dream, he the whole court goes into a tizzy. Like he's afraid, everybody's afraid. So he calls all of his magicians, all of his wise men in, and and he says, here's the dream. What does it mean? And the chief magicians, they then say to him this, okay, a certain child is about to be born in the congregation of Israel, by whose hand will be destruction to all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh then gives the command to kill all all the male children, throw them in the Nile. Okay? So this story is just going through the mind of every person who's hearing and reading Matthew's gospel in the first century. They're like, oh, I get it. Because his audience, they knew about the birth of Moses. They knew about the dream of Pharaoh. It all's making sense to them. I see what you're saying. This is, Jesus is just like Moses. And so the story goes in Matthew that Herod assembles all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquires of them, where was the Messiah to be born? And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it has been written through the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, since from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly in and ascertained from them, when did the star appear? And so he sends him to Bethlehem and he says, hey, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word. Let me know where he is so that I too may come and worship, so that I can come and pay homage. 
right? Let me do this. And so after their audience with the king, the wise uh, counselors, the wise men, they set out. And behold, the star that they had followed, Matthew tells us, it came and it went ahead of them until it came and stopped over the place where the child was. And at that point, they were overjoyed at seeing the star. They saw it. They were there and they entered the house, not a manger, not a stable. This is where they lived. (laughs) They entered the house. They saw the child with Mary and they were overjoyed. They were overjoyed at it. I love that. They, they were just overjoyed in the moment. And so they prostrated themselves and they worshiped him. And then it says that they opened up their treasures and they gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. I love that the Magi found joy in generously worshiping Jesus and blessing this family. It's why the Christmas season is such a season of generosity. It's why we introduce our worth it emphasis every year, because this is the moment where we recognize the, the hope that's found in Jesus for so many of us. And here's the deal. Like, I hate to break the news to everybody, but from a global perspective, we're the magi. <laughs> we're not the shepherds. Every one of us sitting in this room is in the top 10% wealthiest people in the world. And this is this moment to be reminded of that. But the gospel's for us that we need to give. We need to be about this worshiping activity. And so it says that, that they came and they paid him homage. And I love it. They're not threatened by this Jesus. They're overjoyed by what God is doing in the world. And then they have a dream. Again, everybody's like, dreams. Yes, I get it. <laughs> so they have a dream. And the dream warns them, don't go back to Herod. And nobody hearing this in the first century would be surprised by that because they know exactly what Herod wants to do because Herod is Pharaoh. And so they departed for their country by another way. So the meaning behind the magic of the star and the magi for the first century, for Moses, or for for Matthew's community was just this, like, hey, listen, gang, what Moses did to Egypt, what God did through Moses to Egypt and the rescue is nothing compared to what Jesus is going to do. Nothing at all. Like the great exodus, what formed us, what shapes our imagination about God is now being fulfilled in this Jesus who is shaping the imagination about God for everyone. And Matthew is concerned with saying, there is a new law that's coming that is the fulfillment of all. The fifth kingdom is arriving. It's here. And I think the the imagination calls us to, to see this. Depending upon your perspective, the message, the gospel, this Jesus is either gonna bring joy or distress right? That's the thing. That's what cared. That's why this story is so powerful because for all of us, we're faced with the reality of where is our focus? What is our perspective on this Jesus? Will it bring us distress like Herod or joy? Herod's perspective was threatened. The Magi's perspective was opportunity. Opportunity. So when, when you are a part of a community that at, at Christmas time calls you to generosity to say, hey, go ring a bell for two hours, Right? Let's go ring bells for two hours. Do you see that as a threat to your time? Or do you see it as an opportunity to go and bring hope to somebody? What's the perspective there? When we talk about our Worth It campaign, we talk about giving financially above and beyond to create a space of hope, to bring peace on earth through the ministries. Do you see that as an opportunity to invest? Do you see that as an opportunity to give, to grow in generosity? Or is it a threat to your kingdom, to your power, right? What is it? That's the big question. 
And so in your everyday normal life, as you balance that tension, I want to encourage you to look for the messengers. Look for the messengers that can guide you, that can bring you the good news, that can open up the pathway for Jesus to be present and to be born fresh, to keep you away from the danger. Who are the stars, the dreams, the angels that are pointing you towards a path of generosity, that are pointing you towards a path of inclusion, that are pointing you towards a path of grace and hope? Like, where are those people? Who have they been? And here's the thing. This is the big one. Like, you got to recognize there's always a bit of Herod and a bit of the Magi in all of us, okay? I wish I could say that, oh, I am a total Magi. Like, I'm always about it. Like, I'm always about just giving. I'm always about, like, I'm never threatened by the kingdom of God. If only that were true. There's always this tension of the Herod inside of me and the Magi inside of me. There's the side of me that wants to be a generous person. I want to be thought of as a generous person, but I really don't want to be generous, (laughs) right? Like, the idea of you thinking I'm generous is far better than me actually being generous, (laughs) That's, but that's okay, because here's the thing. I really do believe that in that tension between our desires and our fears and, and our contentment and our trust, like there's a gap there, right? What we desire and where we're content, there's a gap. Where we trust, where we fear, there's a gap that's part of who we are. Like that's where salvation comes, because that's where we're transformed. When I recognize that tension that's there, when I recognize, oh man, I don't want to go stand for two hours and ring a bell. It hurts my back thinking about it. I don't know if I want to give it. I don't know if I want to, I don't know if I want to go serve out. I don't know if I want to invite my neighbor over. I don't know if I want to be nice at work. <laughs> but when we honor that and we hold that truth, we're encountering the transforming work of God in our lives. And the story every year reminds us, which kingdom will you live under? Which kingdom will you live under? See, Rome just couldn't quite give up being the fifth kingdom, okay? So Constantine comes along, has some sort of a conversion experience, turns the cross upside down, makes it a sword, and goes and conquers in Jesus' name. Oh, yeah, it's the fifth kingdom. (laughs) But it wasn't. And so that kingdom is always breaking in. It's always asking us, what is it going to be? Is it going to be America, or is it going to be the kingdom of God? Is it going to be my bank account? Or is it going to be the kingdom of God? You want to know why these stories are so powerful? Because they have so much meaning. And the meaning transcends their factuality. And when we actually submit and surrender to the meaning of the story, when we find the magic, I think we find what the wise men found. True joy. True joy in the face of pain and sorrow and frustration. Some of you are just like, finally the last villain. So turn the page over. There's another 12 now. <laughs> so as we wrap up, what's God inviting you into today? If you're a guest today, I always ask this question uh, at the end of every chat. What's God inviting you into today? Because if we're not expecting God to be inviting us or the universe or whatever word you use, I don't think God really cares what word we use. God is, the, is, a, is a word we use for what is beyond us, but so imminently near to us. What is, what is God inviting you into? I, I wonder if maybe God's inviting you into just kind of letting go of that heavily modern way of like duality, that it's either fable or it's fact. And to start just focusing on the question, well, what does it mean? What does it call me into?
Perhaps there's this uh, call to join the Advent journey, right? Maybe it's to kind of live into this journey that we're on. You can sign up on the back of your Connect card or online on the digital Connect card, and you'll get a text every day or an email at the beginning of the week with just a very short daily reading. We're going to do it together every Sunday, so we're getting ready to do that now. Maybe just join in on that and, and come to it with the perspective of just set aside the question of, did this really happen and know that it really happens, <laughs> that it really does transform us? And then I would encourage you to this week, along with everything, just set aside maybe 15 or 20 minutes and read Matthew 1 and 2. Read Matthew's like pearl and just look for some of the things that we've talked about on your own. Just explore that. It was interesting. I was thinking the other day that I really want to be a church where people can come and you can listen and, and you can not come and hear what you need to like know but hear what you need to know so that you can start growing, so that you can take this and you can apply and you can think through these questions and you can look at the stories of Jesus and find all that meaning because you got a little bit of that understanding of, of, of what does it mean to have a lens of parable? What does it mean to have a lens of historical context? And that you can grow. And so I would encourage you to do that. So we're going to have our Advent moment. In just a, and you'll be invited to participate. We're all lighting an Advent candle today if you'd like to, and Rod will walk us through that. But I want to invite you to stand up. We're going to sing a Christmas carol and light our Advent candles. We have hundreds of Advent candles here for us to light in just a moment. Uh, look around you. If you're with someone who uh, maybe doesn't have the mobility to come forward, would you bring a candle to them? And, and so they might be able to light a candle and set it back. Just look around you and just serve the people around you uh, in, a, in a way that honors the divine image in all of us. All right, let's sing this together. shared about the messengers who have prepared the way for us to grow in our faith. In Jesus' day, his cousin, John the Baptist, prepared the way. John's preaching opened their minds and hearts to hear the message of the Messiah when he arrived. Today, we might ask ourselves, who are our messengers? How do they give us, how do they prepare us a way to welcome Christ in one another? Are we open and receptive to the messengers who can help us more fully experience the presence of God. Advent, for those of us who are new, is a season where we open ourselves up to receive the divine light, however it may come to us. The scripture for today is in Luke chapter 3, verse 4. Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his path. Make straight his path. Now, my messengers are all over the place. Usually they come from humble people, who have no idea they are showing me God's truth. They are loving parents, courageous healthcare workers. They may come in the form of patient educators. They may come in the form of very faithful retail workers. All these messengers have helped me to be bigger hearted and less selfish. But some of my messengers, I have to be honest, challenge me and make me uncomfortable. And sometimes I don't want to see the truth of my biases that they are trying to show me. They are the messengers who remind me when I'm forsaking my values or misusing my power, acting entitled or holding a grudge or simply being closed-minded. Each day of this Advent season, we are taking a moment to reflect on one element of God's goodness. And today, we focus and honor our messengers of the light. 
today's intentions on the screen. Let's all take a look at this. It says, today I will think about my messengers of light and express my gratitude for them. So as the music continues, I invite you to call to mind maybe just one person who has served as a messenger who has prepared your heart to receive God's light. And I invite you to join me in the lighting of the Advent candles to mark your intention in your prayer. So up front, like Ryan mentioned, there are candles up here, and there's also these votive matchsticks that we encourage you to light. Think about the person that is being served as your messenger. Say a prayer for them and light that candle in their honor. So be free to come forward right now. our blessing for the week. If you're a guest, we just speak a blessing over us as we leave and enter into our everyday normal lives where the real joy of the kingdom is found, our real opportunity to bring hope into our world. So may the hope of Christmas give you joy this week. And may that joy give your hands and feet strength should they grow cold or tired while ringing that bell outside of Walmart. And may your eyes be filled with wonder and your heart first be full of contentment. And may those things happen while you're enjoying the magic of this season. And this week, secondly, may your heart also be filled with gratitude for the dreams and angels and stars that God has used to bring the message of hope into your life. See, these are the miracles of love that point us to Jesus. And may you find overwhelming joy in worshiping and giving generosity, gener generously at the manger this season. And this week, in your everyday normal life, may you yourself become a dream, an angel, or a star to someone searching for the hope and joy that's found only in Jesus. Amen. Amen. So hey, listen, as you head out today, don't forget, sign up for bell ringing. I think we have like about 50 slots open still. So sign up for bell ringing. If you want an Advent candle for home, you can pick that up, visit the giving tree. And also I wanna encourage you to stack the chairs around you in piles of six as we get ready for jingle jams. That will help our facilities crew out greatly. If you'll just stack your chairs up around you, that'd be awesome. Thanks for being here. Have a great week, everyone.